Hi, everybody. Welcome to the War Room, our interview series as part of the Clone Star podcast. I am your host, Joe Hurley, and joining me this week, as usual, is my co-host, Mike Overton. Mike, how are you? I am good, thank you. And this week, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by a composer with over 250 episodes of Star Trek under his composition belt. One movie, if I'm correct, nine Emmy nominations and one win. Um, He'll correct me if I'm wrong on any of that. Two wins. Two two wins. There you go. I'm totally wrong already. Um, So we're absolutely delighted to be joined by... Composer extraordinaire, magnificent legend of the Star Trek world, Dennis McCarthy. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Sean and Mike, and it's great seeing you guys and meeting you, even though it's virtual. But uh, yeah, of the uh, it's so funny because on IMDb they say that one Emmy. Yeah, that's where I got the list from. Yeah, so what's the second one? One is the DS9 title. Yeah, the theme, and then. Uh, I can't remember which episode it was. Uh, it's a next generation, and I believe it's the one where Stark's father. Unification. Uh, Spock's father. Stark is my doctor. Spock. <laughs> you get to be my age, you know. <laughs> Spock's father comes on the show. And uh, it was one of those things where I had 60 musicians, six French horns. I mean, just you name it strings to the wall, woodwinds, brass, everybody percussion. And uh, by this time, they had relented and let me use percussion, which was nice. You know, as Jay probably told you at the very beginning, it was like, okay, I think I heard a timpani. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got two wins then. I'm going to have to correct IMDb on that. So that means 92 and 93, you won an Emmy then. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, my word. Um, Dennis, thanks again for coming on the show. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at your early life and things like that. Obviously, we know you eventually settled into the magnificent world of Star Trek. But growing up, did you grow up in a household filled with music or how did it all come about? Definitely full of music. We always had a piano and uh, my parents had a, an upright and I started playing it when I was four. And so my my dad's mom had a baby grand, like a five footer. And she said, I'll trade you because you got something who's actually gonna play it. So we got the baby grand, started to play, started taking piano lessons uh, up until I was about 12. And then I, I wanted to learn about jazz. I heard Bessie Smith, you know, and I said, wait a minute, what is that? You know, that's wonderful. So I found a teacher, but my parents would not pay for it. They wanted me to do, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I wanted to do. Uh... You know, that I was born to that kind of a groove. So hang, sorry, hang on a second, Dennis. That means then just tying it back to the Emmys here. You won an Emmy for unification. And in the second part of that, there is a jam person playing jazz kind of piano in it. Is that your composition then in that episode? I believe it was. Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it was either Mike Lang or Jim Cox or Tom Rainier, one of the three playing. Brilliant, brilliant players. And uh, so anyway, what I did is I went out and started mowing lawns in the neighborhood to make enough money to pay for my piano lessons. And But I'm allergic to grass. Not, but that's kind of stuff. So anyhow, I go out and I'd mow the neighbor's lawn for 50 cents. 
and I come to collect. Of course, I have tears streaming down my face and my nose, and you know the whole the whole thing. I said, fifty cents, please. And they give me a buck. So it, I, it was a whole scam, but it worked. So I was able to pay for the piano teacher, and she taught me. First thing she showed me was a G thirteen chord. You know. Ooh. You know, I was in my God, I could be Ray Charles, you know, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I studied with her for a couple of years and great fun. And my my dad, I should back up US about the family. My dad was a, had a beautiful Irish tenor voice, truly Irish. I mean, he would sing, you know, like uh, opera, local, you know, local opera companies and stuff like he was sing lead. Uh, Nesson Dorma was one of his, you know, beautiful. Oh, lovely. And my mom was a pianist, but she didn't really read music. She was a totally ear player. And so that's what I, and when I was taking my classical quote unquote lessons, you know, I'd get the ruler because the teacher would play something and purposely put a different note in. And I sit down, look at the music and play the different note because I was hearing what she played. And to me, that was, that was the way I learned. Yeah. And so, you know, don't do that. Look at the music. You know, so of course I, <laughs> I looked at the music, but I was, anyway, so I took piano lessons till I was maybe 14, 15 years old and uh, ended up being a church choir director because my dad was a church choir director. My mom was the kids choir director. And then when they moved up to San Francisco, I took over the job at like, I think I was 18 or something, 19 years old. And, uh, you know, good sized church, 500 people. And I always, I always had a great love for the classics, good, great classical music, but I also had an even larger love for the Ray Charles of the world, the Bessies, you know, everybody. And uh, my parents also were in, my dad used to sing jazz, so like a lot of big band stuff happened in the house. And so that was kind of my education. I graduated from high school, how I don't know, and uh, <laughs> ended up going to UCLA and majored in engineering, you know, real good call there. So I, you know, I basically would show up. Well, the problem was UCLA, when I'd come from the Valley, anybody who knows the San Fernando Valley knows it. You'd go over, well, it's the 405 now, it used to be Sepulveda. If you turn left, you go to UCLA. If you turn right, you go to the beach. Okay, come on. No <laughs> you have a so choice, which one would you go to, UCLA or the beach? <laughs> <laughs> Let me think, do I have suntan lotion? Yes, okay. So, you know, a year and a half later, UCLA said, nice, goodbye. You know, so I went, then I went to Valley JC at junior college because I got kicked out. I never showed up to class. The JC I actually loved and I actually took one semester of music with uh, Patty, who still is my wife 58 years later. And we took a music class together and the music teacher said, you know what, it's, uh, I'm sorry, I skipped over, but then I went to, I did fine. I did, went to the San Fernando Valley State and I went there and that's where Patty and I were going. And he called the both of us into the room. We were both taking music because what would happen is he would, you know, I've always had an ear. I mean, that's what I did. You know, it's, it kind of came that way. And the same as I can't walk and chew gum at the same time, but I can, you know, hear music. And so, we took this class and, and he said, okay, it's a basic music class. And he would play like a string quartet and say, okay, go up to the board and they had all the staves. And he said, write what you've heard. Well, most of the students would write maybe the first five notes of the first violin. Well, I wrote the whole thing out. He said, oh, you know the piece? I said, no, no, it's played. So he said, okay. So he called us into his room and he said, you know, one of you, and he pointed to Patty, 
should stay in school and uh, really learn music. And, and the other one of you two should just get the hell out of here and recognize <laughs> the other students. Go out and work. He said, There's, we can't teach you anything you don't already know. And so basically, I did. So I went to school for a total of like five years. I didn't even get an AA degree. I mean, nothing. And, and all I took that one music class, that was it. So hang on, Dennis, one thing, you said your wife is into music as well, and you're in the same school and things like that. Do you have a different kind of type of interest in music, or are you very much kind of aligned in it? Well, at the time that we met, she was with a, a folk singing group and a duo, she was both. And uh, she played guitar, you know, and was teaching folk guitar in, in uh, North Hollywood, California. And so it was natural that we got together. And I, of course, was doing whatever I did. I was starting to work with rock and roll bands. And uh, I ran into a guy named Gary Usher, who was very famous. He was a, the car and surf era, the Beach Boys and stuff like that. Roger Christian, he used to write a lot of tunes. And so I was with these groups and I, they'd try to get me to sing in a car. I can't sing, you know, it's horrible. And I mean, you think some of my dads would come into me, it didn't work. And uh, so anyhow, we, the groups went super stocks, the four speeds, I mean, all these car group names. We were like cover bands for Beatles. I'm sorry, Beach Boys stuff a lot, not the Beatles. They hadn't come around yet. And uh, well, yeah, they did. That's another story. But anyway, uh, so all of a sudden they, they had a hit called uh, Go Little Honda or Little Honda, the Hondells. And so I was not in that group, uh, but their guy, the keyboard player, this was when Vietnam was starting out, got drafted. And so they had to replace him and uh, a fellow named Dick Burns and, and a Les Weiser, who I went to high school with, great saxophone player, uh, said, you know, well, Dennis, you know, Dennis, because the job was, he had a Farfisa organ, he played bass with the left hand, organ with the right, stood on one foot so he could work the volume pedal and sang third part harmony. I said, okay, works for me. And we were all, we, well, there were a couple of good singers in the group, but basically when we would do stuff now and then, Glenn Campbell would come and sing for us under the under you know, under cover of darkness because he was signed to Capitol, of course, so he was not allowed to do anything else. Yeah. And of course he did. And so I met Glenn and then I started doing some recording sessions and uh, I said, okay, you know, these are car and surf. He didn't know, you need to read chords, really. He didn't need to read notes. And I did fine, and Glenn got to know me. I got to know him. Cut to the chase. Uh, Glenn calls up one day. I'm working at Patty's dad's liquor store in Burbank. And, you know, slinging bottles and, you know, trying to not get robbed. And uh, <laughs> so Glenn calls up, and he says, Dennis. And I go, well, I won't do that anymore, okay. He did have kind of high voice, so... He says, I'm, I just put out a record called Gentle on My Mind, and I got one by the time I get to Phoenix, and it looks like this, they're getting a little airplay. What are you doing? And I said, well, goofing around, working in a liquor store, you know. I, I even worked at assembly line at the Chevy plant in Van Nuys for a while. I mean, you know, I kind of did the whole thing. And he said, well, I'll pay you, and this is a true story, $28.50 a night to come out with me on the road. And I said, do I have to pay for my hotel? Well, you split it with three other guys. You, you all get the same room. <laughs> This was, this was not a high rent operation. So we go out and, you know, Glenn's all of a sudden huge. I mean, he outsold the Beatles. He outsold Michael Jackson one year. Just monstrous. Galveston, Phoenix, Wichita linemen. So we're playing these huge venues like outdoor stuff where there's 80,000 people. 
you know, filling auditoriums, doing all this stuff, and, and the unions were getting kind of angry. They said, we need to have arrangements, charts for the musicians. And so Glenn said, well, I have my recording charts. You know, Al Delore had done some really nice, uh, obviously very nice charts for him. And he said, yeah, but we have other songs. And so he gets the band together. It's me, the keyboard guy. Well, piano, well, occasionally a warlister. And Larry McNeely, the banjo player, not banjo, banjo, Bob the drummer, Bill the bass player. And he says, okay, do any of you guys know how to write orchestra arrangements? Here? You know, band arrangements. Well, no. And he said, okay, any of you guys know how to read music? I said, well, I can read a little bit. He said, good, you're the arranger. <laughs> and that is, that is a true story. I went out and bought a book, Van Alexander, How to Arrange. And what I would do is I'd write arrangements. And I'd throw them on the stands. I'd conduct the show, play the piano. You know, I mean, it was kind of a one-man band sort of a thing. And then after the show, I'd go up to the, say, the trumpet section. I'd say, okay, guys, how was my arrangement? On, uh, say, yesterday, the Beatles tune or whatever Glenn was singing. And they'd say, oh, it's great. I said, cut the crap. How's my arrangement? Oh, sucked. <laughs> All right. Why? Okay. Boom, 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 boom. You know, you, you don't write phrasing for us. You don't write yeah. long, short. We have been, we've owned these instruments. We know how to play them. Just write jazz phrasing or legit on top. And then we know what to do. Leave us alone. And stop putting the tenor sax above the alto sax. Okay. So I go back to the hotel room, you know, have a touch of whatever, scotch or, you know, before tequila. And uh, I'd write a new chart, or at least their parts, and throw them on the stands the next night. Because, you know, you play these three three weeks at a time, you know, you play these, yeah. these venues, especially in Vegas and Tahoe. And they say it's better, but still, up, 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 next night a new chart. And so the next week I tackle the strings. Same story. So that's how I learned to arrange, is ask, ask the man that owns the instrument. You know, that's always my philosophy, because he, no matter how much you think you know, you don't know near as much as that guy who's been playing trumpet for 30 years. And Dennis, question for you then, so like, like it just seems to be kind of almost like seismic kind of change. Like, as you said, you were literally working in a liquor store to suddenly being like on stage in front of like massive audiences. You were kind of writing the kind of arrangements and things like that. Did you just completely take it in your stride or at any point did you say, what the hell am I doing here? Like, this is not where I thought I'd find myself. Yeah, actually, I, to be honest, I just it was just another job for me at the time. It's like, oh, except it was a lot more fun. You know, I mean, it was great to go out to great restaurants and stuff. I mean, when Glenn started to go, it was first class all the way, travel and hotels. And it just got better and better and better as time went on. I mean, it started off pretty rough working Dante's in North Hollywood, you know, and I'm trying to play left hand bass and, and the bass player saying, do it again, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons from musicians. That's what <laughs> but, uh, no, for me, I mean, I had so many weird jobs in my life. You know, the, the, I worked for a full year swing shift at the Chevy plant, putting transmissions on 1965 Impalas. And, you know, I mean, holding up these things, you know, I went from 212 pounds down to 170 in a year. And I went from being kind of, you know, yeah, to buff. Because, you know, you're lifting 60, 80 pound transmissions all night. So, uh, you know, I could basically... Uh, well, anyway, I had a lot of fun. Let's put it that uh, way. So, so, so at this point now, you're working with Glenn Campbell. Do you see, are you asked, saying to yourself at this point, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay working with Glenn Campbell or, or artists like this. At any point, have you ever said to yourself, I'm going to try and get into movies. I'm going to try and get into TV. Or at this point, are you just there? I'm really happy with what I'm doing. I'm going to keep on doing this. I love what I was doing. It was really fun. Patty would come with me when we go to England or when we go to Vegas or Tahoe. <clears> and... Uh, 
you know, so we, we had a, we had a great time. And uh, as far as as far as doing TV and stuff like that, it never occurred to me. But Glenn, remember, had that the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour for four years. Yeah. And so, well, here's a quick story. Well, probably not. I'm not very good at quick. Uh, <laughs> so Glenn's paying us every week. I mean, to the point where his his wife said, you're paying him for this week? Well, then have him come over and string our Christmas lights. And he said, well, Dennis is afraid of heights. He said, good, two-story house, bringing the Christmas lights. Anyway, so we're, we're getting paid every week. Uh, and so Glenn says, well, everybody in the band has to work on the show. Well, for the drummer, bass player, banjo, banjo player, I'll, I'll straighten that out, banjo player, uh, you know, Larry McNeely, whew, gifted, gifted, him and Carl Jackson, two of the most amazing banjo players I've ever met. Anyway. Uh, says, well, you have to use everybody. So they were able to work in the pit as their little bluegrass section of the show. And But I'm a keyboard player. You know, you ain't got keyboards in bluegrass. So, okay, we're not going to do that. And so they said, well, why don't you be the pit piano player? And I went, uh, okay, but you know, I don't read that well. Tough, you're doing it. Go over and meet Marty Page. So Marty Page was a music director. So I go to his house and he's thrilled to see me. You know, I said, hey, Marty, look, I'm being forced to show up at your house. I'm sorry I'm here. Can I just leave? <laughs> he said, no, come on in. They said I had to talk to you. So I go in and we go into his, his studio and he's got one of these. He's got a Steinway B Ooh. in his studio. I said, wow. So started to play and he said, OK, play some. So I said, OK, I'll play Love for Sale. And I did, you know, this sort of there. did that and then he said okay play some blues you know so so I played some blues all right and so then he says okay he throws a Peter Matz chart for me Peter Matz was a music director for Carol Burnett and the way he would write charts is he'd take score paper pin it to the wall fill a 12 gauge with ink and blow it at the score paper. I mean, there were a million notes. Uh, and I looked at him, I said, Marty, I already told you. And I had told him, I said, I really am not a reader. And he said, okay, well, I said, he started calling out songs, you know, okay, play this, play that, play this, play that. And so I played for about, I don't know, half an hour, you know, just he'd call out. So finally he says, play the Christmas song, you know, the old. Uh, So I played that, and he says, well, that's pretty chicken shit. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you played it in the key of C. He said, I could go down to Hollywood and Vine and find eight guys standing on the corner that can play the Christmas song in the key of C. He said, he said play it in F sharp. Well, I've been working with country bands, you know, Millsaps and Willie and all those guys because of Glenn Show. You know, I've worked with all of them. And uh, I said, okay, that's just numbers, one, four, Two minus, you know, okay, fine. So I played in F sharp. And uh, he said, okay, play it in B natural. I said, I am natural. He said, no, play it in B natural. So <laughs> played it, play it in B. And he said, fine. He says, okay. He said, if you, if you notice anything really odd about your playing, and I'm going, okay, I'll bite. You know, he <laughs> says, I've asked you to play all these songs, and half the time you don't play the melody to the song. I'm not playing the lead line. And I said, well, I assumed you knew that part. And he went, oh, he said, my boy, you're an arranger. He said, you're a natural born arranger. He said, you don't care about the melody. You only care about the brass and the rhythm section and the strings. And I said, right. 
I can't, I couldn't, I said, if you asked me to sing, to give you the lyrics of Gentle on My Mind from Glenn, I couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, it's knowing that you're in there if I lose it after that, because I don't pay any attention. I just use the, the melody as a way to, how do I augment this? How do I make it, uh, you know, sing? So he said, come, we'll arrange together. So uh, it was great. He got Mike lying on the piano, thank God. Mike, Mike was fabulous. Just what a great player. And he had, he started me doing arrangements. So I wrote a chart. He said, the first chart is for once in my life, for once in my life, the Stevie wanted to think, but for Ray mm -hmm. Charles who was on the show, my, my idol. So I said, okay, so I wrote this chart, worked on it hard. And Marty said, I want to see it first before I give it to the copyist. So I handed it to him and he said, well, that's a great sketch. I said, what do you mean sketch? He said, you didn't transpose the instruments. He said, if you write a, a C for a B flat trumpet, he's going to play a B flat. If yeah. you write a C for a French horn, he's going to play an F. He said, and the viola player does not want to see anything in treble or bass clef. There is a viola clef, you know. And I said, oh. So, so he fixed it up. And he said, but the worst thing you did, I said, oh, God, I was waiting for it, is you wrote it in 4-4 four, four time for once in my life, two bars, three bars, four bars. There's a reason for this, $80. He says, no, you write it in two. One in my two, three, four, eighty dollars so you double what you earned. <laughs> I actually wrote a piece in one. It was Beethoven's, that rock version of Beethoven's. Nelson Riddle was doing a show and had me come and do the arrangement on it. And I wrote the first part in one. $80. He said, I'm going to try to do that myself. <laughs> when you were getting all this feedback, Dennis, did you ever feel that you were being overwhelmed by it? Were you thinking to yourself, this is too much? Like, I just want to do something normal, straightforward. You give me so much information. I don't know if I can adapt to this. Or were you there going, I can do this. There's no worry at all. Uh, door two, door number two. Because the process with Glenn was over nine years. So it was everything I learned was okay, I've learned this. Oh, here's something new. Oh, okay, I've learned that. Okay, here's something new. Glenn's doing a, a special with John Wayne and Burl Ives. And, you know, I ended up writing a lot of the charts. And, you know, by the time I got to that point, I was getting pretty good at, at writing charts. You know, I mean, after I wrote 900 and some arrangements for Glenn over the years, you know, everything from classical to, you know, funk to rock to and country, of course. And, uh, you know, I, like I say, I learned from the, the musicians. They were fantastic. I mean, what a way to learn, you know. And uh, like I said, I never went to college for music except for the one semester where he basically kicked me out of the class. And so it was, it, I just, I just kind of grew with it as it went. And I'm still working, you know. I'm At this point... <laughs> And Dennis, how did it transition into TV, like in movies? Where did all that come from then? Well, I did the specials, you know, the music specials, you know, which are always, it's just like a road show. You know, yeah. You're doing arrangements for singers. And maybe a little uh, play on music, play off, you know, if there's a dance number, you're doing a dance number. So I I left Glenn, uh, didn't do, I, did, I'm, I didn't work for a year and a half. You know, just got to the point with Glenn where I, you know, we had kids and stuff. We had our three kids and we wanted to, you know, I wanted to be home. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll stay home. 
So I said, oh, I'll get a lot of work. Uh, wrong. You know, and one of the things that happened is that I, I went to a couple of recording sessions. Now, I had been, I had seen Mike Lang at work in the pit and so forth. And, and so I went to a couple of recording sessions and I, and I said, I want to be a keyboard player on recording sessions. Then I heard Mike, Jim Cox, Tom Rainier play. And I went, oh, I better do something else. You know, I mean, <laughs> literally, I just, I, I couldn't believe their sight reading, their their improvisational skills. These guys were magnificent. That's, you know. Anyhow, so I thought, okay, so I, I got a call to do this Monte Carlo show. It went for one season. It was in Monaco. And uh, it was the toughest show anybody has ever envisioned. First of all, there was no union protection. Right. The camera, 22 people, 21 or 22 people went to the hospital off that show including our copyist, but that's another story. So anyway, uh, I'll tell it. Maybe I'll, I'll tell it. So anyway, <laughs> I'll tell it right now. So we, I lose our copyist, and I'm writing all the arrangements. Well, I have a dance number four days a week, four shows a week for 10 weeks, and dance numbers, you know, so I'm having to write these dance charts, and I'm writing charts for everybody. We just told the people that come, you know, it's like Cher, and uh, you know, everybody who was a star came and did this show, including Glenn, so it was good to see him. Uh, Doc Severinsen showed up without his charts, and I said, <laughs> you're with the rhythm section, dude. I'm writing the, writing the dance number right now. Sorry. So anyway, they had the, the Grand Prix, the Monte Carlo Grand Prix was one of those weeks. So we, the show was gone, and we had to leave the hotel. So I left the hotel and uh, came back home. I wasn't going to tell you my stealing our copyist out of the hospital, but just trust me. <laughs> I, I, with my jive French and two big cameramen, we actually got him out of his hospital bed, lost his shoes, and took him back to work. <laughs> so that's the kind of show it was. So I come back to town and I get a call from Dick Harris, uh, music. He was the music director. And he said, uh, I believe it was Warner's. Uh, just going back to when I had all my hair, you know. So anyway, he says, I've got a show. It's a spinoff of Dukes of Hazard called Enos, E-N-O-S. And I want you to do it because you've got country chops, but you can write for brass. I want brass and, you know, steel guitar, the whole Megillah, the banjo and everything else. And so I said, okay. And I did this show. And I, I, I said, when does it go? He says, well, you only have a week to write. I said, a week? Not a day and a half? I said, you know. So anyway, so I did that show, and to cut to the chase, I finally get through that show, and I'm doing some other stuff, and here comes a Barber Mandrill series, and Barber and the Two Sisters, and I said, okay, so I went into, you know, audition for the job, and the uh, producer, Ernie Chambers, said, well, what have you done? And I named off some of the Dwight Smith, Dwight Hemian shows I'd done with Glenn, you know, the John Wayne, anybody can do that. So those guys give you three weeks to write a show. He says, I'm talking about the night before getting down. Have you ever done anything difficult? I said, I did the Monte Carlo show. He said, you're hired. I mean, it was <laughs> that fast. <laughs> I mean, so I started doing that, and, and, I, and all of a sudden, here come some other shows. You know, I'm starting to write some uh, episodic. And it builds up and it builds up, and I start getting a reputation for being pretty fast. Do you remember V, the final battle? Yeah, I remember V, yeah. Yeah, so I get a call, and they'd already had it scored. It was six days to air. An hour and six minutes of music still had to be done with 60 musicians. But Dick Harris called over there, and he said, hey, there's only one guy that can do that. That's Dennis, because he grew up in the sweat box or something. We don't know what happened. 
but he, he has no idea what a clock is for or, or evenings, you know, no sleep. So I come and I do this, I do this, the show and I'm writing and it's, it's going to the dub stage as I write and we record and it goes to the dub stage. And finally, there's this one sequence where it's the balloons dropping the poison to the aliens down. And I write the cue and we record it and I've got oh, all the best players. We just got George Deering on guitar, for God's sake. Um, Ralph Humphrey on drums, percussion, Alan Estes. I mean, just the boys, Kenny Wild, Chuck Berghoffer, just the greatest collection. Bob Finley on trumpet, you know, just John, uh, just unbelievable people. So I turn around and look at the booth after we've done the cue and it's like this. And I say, oh, this is not good. So I pull the booth and they said, Dennis, this is the climax of the show. This is the end. This is the yo mama moment of the six hour miniseries. And I said, oh, not yo papa. I said, no, yo mama, cut it out. So I said, all right. So I said, you know what? We're 15 minutes away from our lunch break. Let's take an hour 15. It'll take me that long. Okay. And I ran into the copyist room and said, give me score paper and a pencil sharpener and just started to write. And uh, then I went to Fred Selden, my woodwind player I'd known since high school. We had the EWI, the electronic woodwind instrument, you know, with all the flourishes and stuff. Yeah. And George Deering with his flourishes and Ralph with his syndromes, you know, boom, 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 all those things. I said, okay, guys, I'm going to write you slash marks. I don't have time to write you notes, okay? Here's the chords, here's the slashes, here's when you hit, you know? So I marked accents where I needed them to do something. And I said, okay, everybody got it? Let me hear the sound. Okay, great sound. All right. Okay, roll tape. Now here's the producer. So we do it. And I turn on the green. <laughs> I mean, I mean, okay, yeah, I did, I did rewrite the whole darn thing. But basically, it was the guys putting their years of experience into yeah. what they played yeah. and knowing what was needed. You know. And Dennis, did you think that the original music that you did for that scene in V, did you think it was that bad? Like compared to say what you well, eventually ended up with? Well, it was underscore. Yeah. yeah. And what I came up with was basically overscore for lack of a better term. Mm. It's like take the scene and just nail it to the wall where if they have dialogue, they're going to turn it off. Yeah. Ah, right. Of course. Yes. Usually the so, dialogue cuts the music out. In this case, the music cut the dialogue out. So. And say, so, with the transition. Oh, what's that? Sorry. <laughs> I <laughs> said so the dialogue's not that important. Yeah, who needs that? <laughs> so just in terms of then, say, you've moved into the realm of TV, Dennis, did you find that kind of transition hard in terms of when you're composing for, say, specific characters, for specific scenes and things like that, did you find that a bit of a unique transition? Did, like, what did you find was the biggest kind of, say, thing that you had to adjust to in terms of taking on that new responsibility? It was it was an adjustment, you know, because I did I ended up uh, thanks to my friend Pete Myers, who's a wonderful composer. Uh, he got me into Dynasty. Well, Love Boat Dynasty, oh. the Colby's, all those things. And he said, here's the trick. First of all, what you do is here's a list of Bill Conti's themes. You know, Crystal Carrington had a theme. Everybody had a theme. The gardener had a theme. If he was cutting this way, he had, he had this thing. Cutting this way, he had another thing. <laughs> I mean, every single thing was Bill. And they were great. I mean, but that you had to adhere to that. So if, if no matter if they come to the room and smack somebody in the face or they go, whatever it is, use their theme. You know, change the orchestration, but use their theme. So I did that, and uh, it was great. But then cut to the chase. 
I start doing a lot of shows. And I mean, Colby, same thing, Bill's themes, you know, so forth and so on. I, then I go do MacGyver and uh, Randy Edelman's theme. It's a great theme that he wrote for MacGyver. Yeah. And of course, the producer said, we want to hear that theme. And I said, boy, do you have it. <laughs> I was raised to do this. I've lived to do this. So anyway, so MacGyver, seven years, six years and three quarters, actually. I left when it kept going to Canada. I said, okay, you know, they, they put me in a box for two hours. And Mr. Claustrophobia here wasn't too happy about that. So anyway, I go and, and do that. And then I get the call to do Star Trek. And Rick Berman and Peter Lordson call me in and Hurley and they say, okay, we want you to take Jerry Goldsmith's theme for the movie and merge it with Alexander Courage's theme and and make something out of it. So it's uh, an opening credit. So I did it on the synths, you know, because I didn't really have the stuff. And I brought in and I said, great, let's do it. So I did the first episode and uh, 18 years later, I did the last episode of uh, Enterprise. So. So uh, oh, at this point, point, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, like, no, at this no. point, obviously, like, coming on board with Star Trek, such a well-known kind of franchise and thing like that, had you watched the, series, the original series? Had you watched the movies? Oh, like, sure. when you? Oh, yeah. And, and uh, look, had great fun, loved them. And uh, anyway, what I was, what I was, I started, the, the point I was going to make is I get to start on Star Trek, okay? I do it. They love the first one. I go to do the second Next Generation. You know, Ron did the next one. I did the following one. And I repeated a thematic piece I'd written, the Picard theme, yeah. it became known as. And I'm out walking in Paramount lot, and the producer comes up and says, uh, I said, how's that score? And he said, uh, fine, don't ever do that again. I said, don't do what? He said, we heard the same piece of music twice. You don't do that on this show. You do not repeat thematic material. I mean, they wouldn't let me use the Goldsmith theme as, a, as an act on. Couldn't use oh. anything. Wow. So basically, you had to sit at the piano and have musical Alzheimer's <laughs> and, and just create a score that, that nobody's heard, you hope. You know, I mean, of course, you know, you, the same thematic ideas, but uh, no melodic, not at all. Never so was that a little bit of a culture shock then compared to what you'd been oh. doing previously? Oh, quite a bit because, I mean, all the shows I'd been doing depended on you being thematic. Yeah. Using things that were associated with the show. And Star Trek, they didn't want any of that. And it's like I did a, one of the, Haven was one where, and I used a lot of violin. So, dun, 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 you know, a lot of yep. solo, fun, country, sort of Baroque sort of stuff combination. And that was another one of those parking lot. Oh, how was my story? Great, don't ever do that again. <laughs> it sounds like a catchphrase you kept hearing, Dennis, over and over oh, again. Yeah. Was, That's great, but we don't hear that again, kind of thing. And I <laughs> yeah. think I think one of the things that categorizes the first three seasons of the next generation by and large is that you've got very different music kind of running throughout the episode to say a large degree. And like, did you find out the reason why they didn't want that repetition throughout? Like, was it just a stylistic choice that said, no, every episode has to feel like its own kind of world kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. That's it. And it was a, uh, it was just something they want. They, they wanted. That's what they wanted to do. And I just went, okay, you know, it's like working in the Chevy plant. Don't put that transmission on a Corvair. You know, yeah. It's not going to work. 
So, and, and as you went through season one and you were coming to the end and obviously there was still a slight bit of uncertainty with it mm. and things like that, like, did you feel that kind of the music that you were composing for the first season was kind of, you know, fitting the bill, was doing the right kind of thing for the episodes? Were you happy with what you'd achieved so far? Uh, for the most part, but, you know, they would crush the music yeah. at the session. You know, hey, what's that? What's a crescendo? No. <laughs> And then the dub stage, you know, uh oh, I heard I heard a French horn, and you know, down it go. So, uh, you know, but what happened is that eventually, as time went on, it got to the point where they started really liking a little more music, percussion. You know, they would uh, okay have some percussion in there, and have some crescendos and have some melodic things. And uh, by the time we got towards the the last couple three years, you know, we were writing stuff. And, uh, you know, having a lot of fun. And Jay and I basically swapped shows. You know, we, we each did an alternate yeah. show. And uh, so I'd kind of turn on the TV, see what he'd done. He'd probably turn on the TV, see what the hell I'd done. But it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Dennis, so, I'm going to ask you the unfortunate question here, which is whose music was better, yours or Jay's? Ah, well, I think we're equal. And the reason being is that the producers would pick and choose which shows they wanted us to do. Ah. Something had a lot of jazz or groove to it. Jay, if they wanted something where, you know, some planet blows up, it's Dennis. You know, I was good at, you know, planets and suns, you know, supernovae. You know, I just, I love things blowing up. Probably the Chevy plant, that's what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, Jay, Jay's stuff is great, and uh, I really enjoyed what I did. So what is your favorite episode that you worked on? Boy, that is. If you had to one. pick one that you've done, which is your favorite? It's only like you—you you only have to pick one of two hundred and fifty-eight episodes, Dennis. That's all. Like, yeah. It's very easy. Well, there's there were a couple of ones. The uh, the pilot was it was the jellyfish. Yeah. You know, rising. I love that one. I love the one where they had the holographic doctor's daughter die. Yeah. I mean, oh, I could yes. have never done that score in the first three years. Never have done it. It would have been thrown out. You know, because it was emotional, yeah. and uh, and the other one was the final Deep Space Nine, that ending sequence. You know, I just love that show, and uh, and that ending know. sequence still makes me cry even to this day. Oh, it's a great one, Yo, Mike. <laughs> and Dennis, I have to. This is the question now that I wanted to ask you because this is what I've always wanted to ask you. So. Whenever somebody buys a new TV or a new phone or a new tablet or a new sound system, there's always one thing that they pick that they're going to say, this is what I want to watch to see how good the sound is. So for me, it has always been the opening of season two of Next Generation, the child with the Enterprise coming towards the screen oh, and all that kind of thing. Cords and marina service, you know. Yeah. 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 And one of the things, if I remember correctly from an interview I saw with you, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if I'm right, you wanted to do a kind of a celebration team because the, we were back for season two. We was worried that the show wouldn't have made it, but you weren't allowed to do it. So you had to do something different. So you gave them this. And it, to me, it is one of the most spectacular bits of music in all of Star Trek because it's not a celebration, but it's just this wonderful burst of music that comes straight at you. Oh, thanks. You know, that's that was a moment. And the musicians loved it. You know, you look out in the room, they're just smiling and you know, fixing my mistakes on the fly. 
<laughs> so in ter- actually one thing then with that piece of music then that starts season two of the next generation that kind of motif does kind of exist throughout the rest of season two quite a lot but had they kind of started to relax the policy a bit more around that time like because again said that was so prevalent throughout the season yeah I, I think they did and also it was uh it was more of, of an orchestral piece you know, it was melodic, yes, but what was important to that piece for me was the orchestra underneath the melody and what they did, what what, what we did with the guys. And uh, so I think it snuck by because it wasn't like, it wasn't any of that. It was like, okay, here it is. It was, it was almost more of a motif than a, a theme, thematic piece. I did sneak the Picard theme in now and then. But, <laughs> so in terms of then so you've obviously done the next generation you've done ds9 you've done void you've done enterprise in what way did you approach the series differently like because i before we did this interview i was down doing the weekly shopping because i'm middle-aged and this is what i do of a monday afternoon and i was listening to the emissary uh score wow. as i was kind of doing yeah. my shopping and i was just kind of conscious of the fact that all the four seasons series have such different kind of styles of music so how did you approach each of them, say, trying to set the tone of this is the kind of music we're going to have? Because it has to differentiate from each other. They have to sound differently. Yeah. How did you approach it? Well, the the start of the next generation, um, as we, we've spoken of, they wanted really muted the music. They just didn't want the music to interfere with anything. I mean, towards the end, okay, it started to break out. Uh, let's see. Deep Space Nine, I would say, was lonelier you yeah. know it's this lonely outpost in space so my theme was really lonely it's just a solo trumpet and some backing from the strings and the french horns of course uh and so it kind of maintained that for a long time and then of course we changed the theme i think in the fourth season made it bigger and brought trombones in and stuff like that and so then it got a little bigger but still had uh, a sense of longing to it for lack of a better term and a lot of the episodes were very sad you know they had some sad episodes um voyager voyager j started you know he he did the uh the arrangement for the theme and it was it was more like his call on that show so i i basically listened to what he did and i said okay let's let's stay consistent here and so it was it was uh and the stories had a lot of like um oh chakotay you know so you'd have a lot of indian flutes and stuff like that and so there was a chance to get into the world of the ethnic instruments which was a lot of fun uh, Enterprise, I got a call from Peter Lauritsen, who's like the main producer on the show, you know, the, the hands-on guy. Yep. And he said, Dennis, I said, what? He said, uh, well, we're going to have to make a change in the music. Of course, the next sentence is, and here's your plated, gold-plated watch, and thank you and go away. But, and then he says, but come on in, we'll talk about it. I went, whoa, I've heard that speech before and never ended up that way. So I go in and he says, you know, we're now getting to where synthesizers are taking over a lot of scoring on a lot of shows and people are expecting to hear some of this. And I said, well, I have synthesizers. I, I own a few. I don't know how to work them, but I've got a couple. And he said, OK, well, what let's do is let's let's get somebody who is a synth guy. And so we contacted Kevin Kiner. And so Kevin and I, what we would do is I would sit at home, write the stuff out, you know, on a score like I'd always do it. And I sent it to Kevin. And he would, quote unquote, realize it on his machines. And then Peter and, you know, Don would come to his house up in, up in, uh, where the heck was he? 
anyway, up north, and uh, Santa Clarita. Which, and and we would sit down and Kevin would play it and we'd make the changes we needed. Okay, that's too much or not enough or make sure you clear this dialogue. And Kevin would make those changes and we'd print out the music and show up with 38, 40 musicians and have them play on top of the synthesizer. So you had the synthesizer groove going, but you still had the orchestra in the, in the, the fashion, the, the sense of Star Trek, which needs orchestras. It's yeah. what it is, you know. And so it was a lot of fun. So the orchestra then really was just kind of accenting the, the synths. If yep, yep. They were in addition to the synths. I mean, occasionally, you know, well, no, actually everything was all there. Then I think about it. I mean, it wasn't like, okay, you do this. Yeah. But of course, we'd have somebody like George Deering on guitar, and he'd, of course, add his expertise in and give it a little bit of life. And Ralph would be playing some percussive thing, you know. So we'd, we had a lot of fun. So, so did. Are there any episodes that you look at now that you would have liked to have scored? That I didn't score? That you didn't score, yeah. Um, The Borg. I I ended up not doing a lot of Borg for some reason. Well, Ron, he did the first one, and I think he did the rest of them from then on. I may have had one or two. And then Jay was the Mr. Borg, you know, so (laughs) I did one or two, but, you know, I I love those characters. (laughs) <laughs> and Jay, in terms of say when you were doing or cheapers Jay, good lord, because you said Jay Chatham is stuck in my head. Dennis, in terms of say, I, I know that in that retrospective they did on the next generation, there's a funny piece where it says Marina Sears is coming down to you in the orchestra and doing your orchestrations. Would oh, the yeah. actors would the actors come down to you much to kind of see what you were doing, or would it just be kind yeah. of not what were they? Yeah, next generation. Only that one. That was the only show where they would come down and visit. We'd go out to lunch or dinner, you know, so it'd be Patrick and Michael Dorn and Marina and Gates and, you know, LeVar, all the troops. We'd, we'd go to some place outside and in the sun and have a nice bite to eat and a drink. And it never happened again in the other shows. That's because, like, when we spoke to Jay and we asked him which is the favorite series he worked on, he said The Next Generation. What was it about them that specifically kind of, like, like, why were they kind of so, say, liked by everybody? Say, I'm not necessarily saying at the expense of every, everyone else, but what elevated them to that kind of level, do you think? Well, they were all, we were all family, all of us, not just the actors, but uh, Jay, myself. Uh, and so it was, it was like, there was camaraderie. And I think it shows in the acting, you know, and perhaps the writing too, I, I don't know. But we were really close. I I did miss that one, the other three series, you know, because I was kind of saying, hey, you know, let's get, uh, well, okay, never mind. <laughs> no. Maybe a rap party. Who was, out of all the Next Generation crew, who was kind of the most interested in the music? Okay, that's a great question. <laughs> of the actors. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Thinking, thinking, thinking. Probably Patrick. I thought you might say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were all into it, but Patrick seemed to be the most interested. He would bring up, oh, it's, it sounds a little like Mahler or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was it was a lot of fun. And uh, I miss that camaraderie. And I, I think that the shows uh, could have benefited by a little bit more of that. I mean, they were fine. I don't mean that there was anything wrong, but, you know, they really needed to get the folks together 
But when they, when they were down, popping down to you, the Next Generation crew and things like that, then were they just watching or would they have a kind of a conversation with you about the music and say the music that, say, would be specifically applied to their character or situation and things like that? And just trying to get a sense of when they pop down, what would be the interaction? Yeah, basically, you know, the, the sessions were so packed. I mean, you had to get so much music out in such a short time or else you lost money. So it would be like after the sh after the session we'd talk. Oh, if you go 15 minutes over, you're six thousand dollars out with the musicians. So I would tape all the rehearsals. I would try not to do a rehearsal and then a take. I try to do the rehearsal is a take, and the musicians loved it because they're on their put them on their toes. You know, it was fun yeah. for them. It's a challenge. But also, I think that just that to itself just shows how good session musicians are. Oh, amazing! As a whole, session musicians are a they're just a different breed, aren't they? Yeah. Where they can just turn up, they've never seen it, never heard it, and just play it flawless. Yeah, they were great guys. I mean, the woodwind section, Fred Selden on his EWI, uh, Gene Cipriano played oboe, English horn, E-flat contrabass clarinet, and Susan Greenberg, our great, we finally brought in a legit flute player. <laughs> the guys say, Dennis, we're not a legit flute. Come on, bring in a player. We need a flautist. She was fat. And then Pete Chrislieb. If, I don't know if you ever remember the old Tonight Show. Doc Severson, he was the lead tenor sax soloist on that show. So he was he was in the pit. And I, oh, man, some of, the, some of the stuff. And anytime you hear jazz saxophone, it's uh, it's Pete. Anytime you hear jazz trumpet, it's Bob Finley. John Lewis played all the legit stuff. And Bob Finley did the uh, did the groove things. So we, we had a fun group. And in turn to say, as you look at the Emmy nominations and things like that, which are two wins, I'd have to correct IMDb for that, of course. Do you think you should have won more? No. I was I was happy. I, somebody told me the other day that Star Trek uh, period got 16 Emmy nominations. Yeah. And uh, I was nominated for nine of those 16. So I'm I'm happy. <laughs> Um, actually, one question that is that I, I, I always thought about this is that if I remember correctly, when the last episode of Cheers aired, if I'm right, the end credits were kind of changed. So it wasn't the normal kind of music that kind of plays that played out. I think it was kind of just like a solo piano or something like that. Yeah. And whenever I watch All Good Things, the last episode of Star Trek Next Generation and the Enterprise flies off into the sunset and all that kind of thing. And then, you know, you have that momentary second where, like, the music of the episode ends, we get into the end credits and all that. Did you ever say to yourself, I want to actually do something different for the end credits? Because, like, for me, I always kind of feel that the end credits are kind of, you know, the, this week's adventure is over, we'll be back next right. week and all that. But this was the end of something remarkably special. And I always wanted to no. know, did you ever say to yourself, no, we're going to change the end credits because it's the last episode? Never, you never did. There was no, no, but there was no, there was no option. I mean, they, they would not have let me do that. So what I did is the end of Deep Space Nine, I did that cue with the solo trumpet, you know, yeah. which I thought would have been great to have the end credits be just the solo trumpet, period. Yeah. Right. Wouldn't that be great? And maybe, maybe, a, and a French horn, the two guys. And how how did Generations come up then? Because obviously you've been working on The Next Generation, the TV series, you've been working on DS9 now at this point, Voyager is on its way as well, which obviously Jay is going to be taking a bit of a lead on. Did you think that you'd get the nod to do the movie? Uh, no. And what happened is that they, they contacted, I believe, and I, I hope my story is correct, they contacted Jerry Goldsmith, but he was either too busy 
or you know what whatever the reason was he didn't take the job so the producers rick berman and peter are in talking to the head of music and uh they said what uh what should we do and he said well you got dennis sitting right there what, what's your problem you know <laughs> it was basically like that <laughs> and so so basically like i went over to rick's house and I'd written a theme and I played it for him and his son was sitting there and his son said, can you change that one note? I said, sure, change the note. And that was it. And the movie was such great fun. I mean, I had what, 80, 90 musicians, yeah. the Los Angeles master chorale, you know, 24 singers, triple tracked, which cost, I don't know, more than, more than my car. And well, more than all the cars I've owned. But, uh, and then, one of the interesting things about generations, you know, the, the Nexus scene where Patrick is in with his family, uh, the they had put in, Steve had put in, our great music editor put in Mahler's Adagiato from the Fifth Symphony. It's a beautiful piece. I mean, just haunting. And I said, okay, now I'm in trouble. I can't match that. You know, you, you don't match Mahler. I mean, he's, mag he's magnificent. And I said, so what I'll do is I'll basically, instead of doing this piece where it goes major to minor with a lot of pianos, just, oh, you got you to gotta listen to it. Stunning. And I said, I'm going to do a tone poem. So that's what I did for that whole scene. It was just huge, slow-moving clusters of tones, yeah. choirs and, and things like that. And uh, so I got 180 degrees away because I knew if I tried to do what Mahler had done, it would show up on the dub station and go, well, that sucks, you know. And this this way, it was like something they hadn't expected, and they liked it. So you know, it worked out. Of course, a lot of Star Trek fans hated it. <laughs> Can't win them all. No. How long did it take you to score Generations? Was it a long process? Because obviously, well, with the yeah. shows, you're done in a few days. But yeah, I'd say I took a week, something like that. Maybe nine days. Oh, okay, yeah. so it was pretty quick. Yeah, but it's it's kind of the way I work. If I yeah. if I if I think about it too much, you know, it, it kind of <laughs> nose dives. I like I like first thoughts, so that's what I do. And, and what was the biggest transition you found then, Dennis, going from the TV series into say getting you know doing the motion picture? The well, the transition it was for me it was the same thing, except I had a heck of a lot more talent sitting out there. I mean, huge orchestra, singers, time, you know, and I'd still tape the rehearsals because that's always my favorite thing. But occasionally I, you know, get out. and of course I could overdub, which you could never do on TV because it doubles the cost, basically. And they said, oh, overdub the strings, overdub the singers. Okay, great. So we ended up, we ended up with this huge sounding score. Of course, it was buried in the mix, but, you know, what else is new? <laughs> Although David Carson, the director, he and I and his wife and Pat, his wife, Kim, who was actually played Picard's wife in the dream sequence. Uh, the four of us went out, Patty, myself, Kim, and David, to watch the, you know, the show when it came out in the theaters. And he was not too happy. He said, they buried your music. And he said, however, I'm in charge of the DVDs and the streaming. Her streaming hadn't happened yet. He said, I'm in charge of the DVD mix. And so he doubled, pushed the music up. So if you see, and I think even the film now, when it streams, it has the new mix in it. So 
And so when you look back at it, because I think Jeepers, I think it was 29 years ago yesterday it came out yes. in the cin- uh-huh. in theaters. Like, do you look back at it now and say, I could have done this better, I could have done that better? Or do you say, do you know what, I really actually think that was a really good you know, part of, you know, a body of my work? I'd say it's about a 60-40 split. 60% says, God, that's awful. And 40% says, okay, I, I hit the nail on that one. It's like when I used to do arrangements for Glenn Campbell, and they'd show up on records, of course. Uh, remember those round things that used to spin anyway? So Glenn would, and Patty and I would be driving in the car, and we're listening to He Ain't Heavy or uh, one of those giant pieces. He had a high D above Pavarotti, and he had a low C. Russian bass. The guy, when they say, oh, he has a four octave ring. No, he really did. <laughs> you know, not falsetto. I'm talking yo. And so Patty and I will be driving along. And we're, we're about to stop in at Mercado and get ourselves a nice uh, couple of uh, enchiladas. And here comes Glenn and I'm going, oh, God, I can't stand to listen to it. You know, I would do it so different. He did a version of my way we were listening to yesterday driving. And I said, you know, I said, I can't believe how awful that was. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I duplicated the vocal in the string line. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. (laughs) (laughs) So just sticking with the generations theme, did you take any influences from anyone else throughout that score? Did you pull any Goldsmith in? Did you pull any, anyone else in or? Boy, not really. It's just, I I guess all the years of doing the, the episodes, you know, I kind of had my, my little case of ideas. Um, so you were your influence, that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, and of course, Sandy Courage's great theme, you know, I was so happy to use that. And I had to fight to get it in the movie. I said, oh, this, come on. You have to have Sandy's theme in here. Yeah. So it shows up a couple of times, the bottle crashing onto the whole yeah. ship. And uh, there's some, one other spot where it shows up. And I, he and I, we went to, I'm sorry, a little sidebar. We went to the Hollywood Bowl. They were doing a Star Trek night. And so the conductor said, well, you guys can come stand on the side, you know, behind the curtains, but you can't come out. And I said, okay. So, <laughs> so you know, here's, here's my city. This is Hollywood. Come on. Well, my city. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I'm standing there with Sandy, with Alexander, as he's officially known. And they got through with one of his pieces. And I said, we can stand for this shit. And he said, nope. <laughs> Went right out. Shook hands with the conductor. He's going, oh, God, okay. You know, taking away from my magnificence. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it, but, do you have um, do you have a favorite track and a I'd say least favorite track from generations? Boy, that's a great question. See, Dennis, I told you, you you're you're coming here for all the tough questions. Like, like we're no, not no, no, the easy interview. Thinking, thinking. I love the opening. You know, yeah. the opening, the bottle crash. I love that. Yeah. I love the uh, Nexus scene, and mm-hmm. Captain Kirk on the horse. Mm. You know, very energetic piece, and I wish it had gone about two minutes longer. I would have loved to have had some some more fun with that one. And as far as negative, not really. We fixed everything in the in the session. That sucks. Okay, let's do something else. You know, so. I actually remember um, Jeepers, I'd say about 10 years ago, when I finally realized there was such a thing as the score of a film where like you'd get all the music because I was always conscious of the fact that there was bits of music from the movie that weren't on the official soundtrack. And oh, yeah. like there were, 
there was only so much putting my tape player up against the TV and recording it and kind of listening <laughs> to it kind of that way. But I contacted, I know it's GMP Crescendo or whatever it was. And I said, listen, this is before the re-release happened all of those years ago. And I said, is there any way to get the entire score of the movie? Because there's bits of music that oh. I left out. I don't think they had any clue what the hell I was on about. Because they're going, look, there's bits of music that are left out. I was having to explain like certain scenes where the music wasn't on the score. And uh, they never got back to me, strangely enough. Um, <laughs> over the years, uh, Dennis, like with their honesty, with their with the expanded soundtrack and things like that, what do you think the reception is now to kind of soundtrack say, currently versus what it was, say, when it first came out? I think when 30 years hit, which is coming up soon, yeah. I'll be 80 next year, so it's a good time to do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I bet you there'll be some interest because, you know, the new series are bringing a lot of people into the fold. And they use, I'll say, use some of my music in it. Very happy, you know. <laughs> and did you enterprise. go ahead? Sorry. Did you hope after generations that you might have been called back for first contact or insurrection or nemesis even? No, I knew it'd be Jerry. You know, I think he really realized he'd made a, a goof by not doing generations. I don't know why he didn't do it. I'm glad he didn't. For my sake, but uh, he, boy, he, he did everyone after that. It's like, okay, I've learned. <laughs> and he, Jerry remains my of all the film composers out there. He is my favorite. You know, I, yeah. I love his, his his uniqueness, what he does, and uh, I mean, okay, John Williams and a theme. All right, you know, <laughs> John uh, Williams does a theme for sure. <laughs> and, exactly, Thomas Newman and his beautiful use of. Oh of eclectic instruments, you know, George Deering on guitars, the, yeah. everything, mandolin, uh, Thomas is great. Anyway, I, yeah, so that's, God, <laughs> keep going back after all those years. Wonderful. And, I'm sorry, what was I saying? I got lost with, oh, my favorite composer, Jerry Goldsmith, yeah. No, but there was one prior, a question prior. Oh, that's why I should have Patty. Patty's, Patty's my my mobile brain. <laughs> um, Dennis, in terms of say, like when you started in 1987, did you think 18 years later that you'd still be scoring Star Trek episodes at that point? No, I didn't. I really, I really had no idea. You know, and, and right now I'm doing doing music. I throw music at ancient aliens now and then and things like that. As a matter of fact, it's my theme, which is pretty cool. And uh, so I work three hours a day. I, I do little albums. I did an album of my own, just me and the piano. It's called, uh, what is it? Uh, Tunes from Future Past. I think. I think that's the title. Yeah. And uh, it's just me and the piano. And uh, they always have one available, or maybe two, on Amazon. But, but it's just—it's all my favorite songs, and it's played like like an arranger would play. I'm not—I'm not like I've mentioned the other pianists. And as a matter of fact, I sent it before I agreed to have it released to Tom mm. Renier and Jim Cox, the, the pianistic greats. And I said, "Is this going to embarrass me?" You know, because it's just it's simple piano. It's just me and the piano. Nothing fancy, no flourishes. I'm just looking at the title list for it now. I think my favorite track name is DS9 at 3 a.m. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, that is used in Star Trek fans' weddings, that particular track. They, oh, go down the aisle to, they go down the aisle to that piece. I'm making a note of that. I'm sure my other half will be thrilled to walk down the aisle to DS9. <laughs> so, so anyhow, I asked Jim and Tom, and they said, Dennis, it's you. You know, nobody's expecting anything more. <laughs> they didn't say it like that, but, you know, so, so it's, uh, it's fun. To, it's, I give it out as Christmas gifts now. First Christmas, I'll have it, but, you know. And so, like, and say with the, especially in the last say 10, 12 years, there's been such a massive kind of interest in like a lot of the music being released on CD and streaming and things like that. Have you been kind of surprised by that level of interest in the yeah. music from different series? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like I went on Spotify and unless I misread it, it said, I think in the last month, some, something of mine, you know, everything included has been downloaded 39,000 times in a month. Yeah. I think it pays five cents total. But, you know, it's one cent per stream. Uh -huh, exactly. You have to do exactly. a thousand streams to get a cent, which is ridiculous. Yeah, I know. But see, for someone like me, Dennis, whenever I go on a road trip or something like that, I would predominantly listen to the music of, say, The Next Generation or DS9, whatever, like Yesterday's Enterprise is a particular kind of favorite of mine because I kind of find that, and Mike, is, Mike would be probably the same as me, is that if I'm sitting down reading something, I can't do it listening to music that has lyrics. So actually on Sunday, on Saturday morning, just gone, I was sitting down reading a book and um, I turned on Deep Space Nine in the background, but I said, no, I can't pay attention to this. So instead, I turned on your music and I was sitting there for four hours just reading, listening to your music in the background. Oh. And it's the perfect way for me to be able to just focus on what I'm doing, but listen to something nice in the background. So I listened to all your Deep Space Nine music as I was reading my book. So I think that's what a lot of people kind of, you know, connect with the music kind of in that way. Well, you'll probably like the piano album. It's music you can ignore. <laughs> I think In the best that, possible way. <laughs> but I think that goes to just show, well, for that, that's just down to film scores in general, I think. Because I do the same. If I'm working on something or I'm reading something, I'll put a film score on of some description. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I was very fortunate last week to go to a sci-fi orchestral night oh. um, where they had three star trek sections um oh, one of which great. was from tng so um but the other one was from picard and stephen barton one of the composers of picard oh, yeah, sure. three uh he was there and he's done oh, a, a special arrangement never met him, never met him. he's a lo he's lovely um stephen barton is absolutely lovely um but i've never heard star trek played by a live orchestra before ah uh. It's and it was just trip. phenomenal. Yeah, we did that at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. And uh, I got to conduct this giant medley that I yeah. put together with, you know, 70 guys and gals. I shouldn't be, you know, sexist. So anyway. I but, think the only time I've heard like Star Trek music performed live, I think, was um, I not long after James Horner tragically passed away in uh, Dublin. They had uh, a night of James Horner music. And they ended it with the opening and ending of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And it was the oh, first time I'd ever heard yeah. I never heard Star Trek music live like that before. Yeah, we miss him. You know, what a talent. What a yeah. Well some of my favorite scores are his. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he had so much more in him. Yeah. And no. Dennis, in terms of, say, current Star Trek series and things like that, what do you think of the music in those series compared to, say, what you would have been doing, say, between 87 and 05? I'm actually surprised at how similar it is. You know, of course, there's elements that in there that we didn't even have access to, you know, the synthesizers and so forth. But I think they it stays. Jeff Russo does a lot of them. It's very melodic and... Uh, I, I think it fits the show very well. I, I think the show has really held up musically for all these years because yeah. everybody who does the music for the show has to understand that this is important. Yeah. You know, this is something that is going to live forever. Sorry to quote you know who, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's important that you make it you know, as beautiful as you can and as, as emotional as you can. So you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. And Mike asked you a while back, what was the favorite episode you worked on? But I'm going to actually be even more specific than mm -hmm. that, Dennis. What okay. is your favorite piece of music from all the Star Trek you did? And that's all 258, like one piece. Obviously, when we spoke to Jay, it was the theme from the inner light that the obviously very much gratitude yeah, towards. Great piece. Uh, yeah. You know, I think I mentioned these before, but I think the doctor's daughter dying, and I don't remember the name of that episode. Uh, real life is it or something like that I don't know what I'm very good that scene where the daughter dies I mean I, I played it for my class and they, they were all crying yeah. and uh, and once again the uh, the opening of Generations you know and the Nexus actually everything from Generations I love you know I really loved everything because it was so big you know without being overpowering it had size without hurting you yeah and, and the funny thing is, is, as you're saying that about generations, the two bits of music that I always wanted to try and get, that's one of the reasons I emailed um, GMP Crescendo all those years ago, was the scene when Kirk meets Demora Sulu on the bridge of Enterprise B and the music when Picard gets the news back from Earth because they're very poignant in terms of, say, like Kirk meeting Demora Sulu is kind of very much a kind of situation of age and experience, like, of, you know, the experience of Kirk versus the youth of Demora Sulu. And then obviously Picard getting the news. And I thought they were so kind of personal and they're very beautiful too, but it's a music. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, you know, as, as a composer, so much of what you write is based on what your life experiences have been. And, you know, nine years with Glenn going out with the Hotdells to Vietnam to play USO tours and stuff like that. Um, a lot of experiences and a lot of them great, a lot of them sad. And uh, you, you inject that hopefully into your music in a way that it comes out and it's understood for what it is. Just and, what do you, and Dennis, what do you think your legacy is to Star Trek music? Boy, French horns. I love a French horn. I did too. They couldn't believe it when I did the first Next Generation. I, they said, what do you need? I need six French horns. Well, we'll give you two. I said, six. They said, four. I said, six are goodbye. <laughs> and, uh, four trumpets, four trombones, you know, four woodwinds and the strings. I, I needed that. One of the reasons is that I write very tough parts for the horns. I'm not on purpose. It's just that I like them high. Yeah. And I like them low. I love the mid-range too, but I like to kind of stretch them a little bit. So I always give one horn player a rest. So five are playing at a time. One guy's taking a break, you know, so they don't hurt themselves. <laughs> Is the French horn then your one of your favorite instruments? Yes. 
I actually, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I had a, when I was on the Glen Campbell Good Time show, Milt Bernhardt was one of the trombone players. He did that da 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 you know, on Sinatra's Gotcha Under My Skin. So he's in the orchestra, and Marty has, Paige has me write a chart. I write a chart and throw it on the stands, and Milt at the end says, Dennis, come over here. He has this huge voice. And I said, okay. He said, I want to show you something. And he pointed to my part for him. He said, what do you see? I said, well, it's your part. He said, no. It's 32 bars of expletive deleted whole notes. I said, you think we're a goddamn Hammond B3? I said, we have to breathe now and then. And he said, I want you to go out and buy an instrument, a brass instrument, come back in a month and play me 32 bars of whole notes. So I went out and bought a French horn. Got, I think I made it through 21 bars. Practically <laughs> passed out. And it was a great lesson, you know. Don't beat up the brass players. <laughs> but anyway, French horn, that was my answer. Um, Mike, I have one last question for Dennis. Do you have any other questions yourself? Nope. So Dennis, this is the last question that we ask and something we always ask uh, of all our guests. Uh, Dennis McCarthy, what does Star Trek mean to you? It's, it it's, it's the biggest part of my musical life, period. And Glenn Campbell was huge. But Star Trek eclipses everything else. I mean, you can imagine 18 years of, of joy of just sitting at this piano with a pencil yeah. and just having a great time. You know, and I'm still working, but you know, it's it's nothing will ever touch those days. So that's it. You know, fantastic stuff, Dennis. Thank you so much for your time uh, with us today. You, your story has been absolutely incredible. Thank you for everything you've done in terms of 258 episodes and one movie as well, <laughs> Dennis. Thank you so much. Mike, thanks as much as well for your company. So, guys, thank you very much for watching or listening in. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you very much.